Good morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the uh, elders in training here, and uh, we'll be opening up God's Word together. We'll be in Exodus chapter 34, if you're not already there. Exodus is near the front of your Bible, if you're new here. I don't know of a clearer illustration of God's character towards me than, than when I raise children. I'm also 38, so perhaps there are other ways in which he uh, has a clear illustration, but for now, it's this. Uh, the main thing that children seem to need is clear boundaries, and yet the main thing they want is to smash those boundaries. Such a large percentage of my time is spent repeating the rules and having them try again. And so there are two temptations that if you're a parent or perhaps you were that child as a kid, there's two temptations that every parent faces to tighten the rules or to drop them all together because you just want to sleep. God isn't tempted the way that we are. And so his solution when we break the law is to not change the law. They're perfectly true, his laws. And yet, because God is full of grace, he is happy to extend mercy to people who break his laws. In fact, in a way that's probably far superior than any parent here can claim. That's always been true of God. And from that, from that combination of perfect law and yet perfect grace, the right response for all of mankind from the beginning has been to worship God. To, to love the grace, but then to, to then to run towards the law and say, I want to obey that, Lord, because you know how life works best. In short, God's very glory is shown in this kind of collision of grace and truth, and his promises are all built on that. In today's text, Exodus 34, we, we have what might seem like a parenting crisis. God's people have broken his law, and he has just literally told them that law. Like he just told them ten minutes ago. And they've broken it already. Were it written on paper, I think the ink might barely be dry. But in grace, God will fully forgive and restore his people. And yet he will not change his law. And he will once again call them to obey him. All of this is actually very disorienting when we see it come together. And it very much applies to us uh, here today. So let's look at this scene together. I'm going to start with your first point, the first nine verses of Exodus 34. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, the Ten Commandments, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come with you. And let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took, his, took in his hands two tablets of stone. 
The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed in the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take for us your inheritance. You can almost imagine that last verse being spoken to you by your child as they have broken the rules. Please go with me. I'm stiff-necked. Pardon me and take for us your inheritance. So your first point, God's glory is a collision of truth and grace. You might have seen that even at first pass of the text. Let's dig in together, especially the first four verses. And I want to consider both the truth and grace on display. So God commands Moses to take two new tablets on which God will share his law again. And then Moses is to come up the mountain alone again, as he did the first time, to meet God. So would you call this instance truth or grace? I think both are on display here. There is great truth. God is not simply cutting his people some slack. And he's certainly not lessening his commandments. Instead, God says the rules will not change. And there's more. Moses is to come alone. He has been set up as the mediator, so he speaks to God on behalf of the people. And so God will only talk with him. Anyone else, animals included, on any part of that mountain, even the opposite side of that mountain, we read in verse 3, are forbidden. If you're familiar with the Tower of Babel story from the book of Genesis, this is a strong contrast to that. Instead of all mankind wanting to climb up together and reach God in their glory, even surpass God, here one person goes alone and it's at God's command. Moses is like a lawyer representing a guilty client, Israel, pleading before a judge who has every right to pronounce death. So there is great truth in this portion. I hope you see that. But don't miss the grace. God is repeating laws to people who don't have a digital backup. If this gets broken, it gets forgotten. So God speaks clearly to help them remember the boundaries so they don't forget how life works best. And perhaps most of all, he's coming down to meet one of his people. Though not even that one person, Moses, has any right to be on that mountain, let alone face God. So there's a ton of grace here, too. And as we continue, look at how God comes down in verse 5. God stands with him. So he is taking human form, we can assume, because of the word stood. You need feet to do that. And God is using language Moses can understand. 
Here's what he says. I'll reread verses 6 and 7. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. But, the Lord says of himself, I will by, by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And at that point, especially if you're not super familiar with the Bible or you didn't really like the church upbringing that you had or you don't like Christians, you're tempted to look at that and say, that's a schizophrenic guy. Right? This is, this is like a combination of the military dad who grounds you if you're home two minutes past curfew. And it's also like the cool uncle that lets you stay up all night playing video games. Right? I mean, that looks like what's happening here. He says, I forgive iniquity, but I will by no means clear the guilty. How can those two statements coexist? I think it helps if you consider God's character throughout the rest of the Bible so far. And I'm going to throw in a parenting illustration too. When God punished Adam and Eve way back at the beginning of Genesis, God wasn't simply venting, and he certainly wasn't cutting slack. God in his response was showing Adam and Eve something that we see all the time. Sin has consequences. That's what God is communicating, and so it's both a true and a gracious statement. It's true that sin has consequences, because it's bad. But it's gracious to even show people that, because then they know it's bad. So it's true, and it's graceful. I'd like you to consider a family tree as an, as an illustration, because when you hear the phrase, sin has real consequences, you probably only think of like your two-year-old. But consider this family tree. An abusive father raises a fearful child who in turn raises a child with no boundaries because we don't want to be mean. Then that child, without any restraint, becomes an abusive father who raises a quiet, cowardly son. And so on and so forth. I've just described a very large portion of the Old Testament. And maybe some of your family tree. Sin is a long, painful object lesson. And many of us feel it here in this room today. All truth, no grace. All grace, no context of truth. But even in this, there is mercy because God would take a rebellious people who have broken his laws and ignored his commands. And God not only spares them, but he kneels down face to face and he says, I'm still your dad. Imagine the cheers when Moses would walk down the mountain as Israel waiting in fear to see what happens. Here's the good news. I'm still your dad. How do we apply all this? Let's take a cue from Moses in verses 8 and 9. And Moses quickly bowed his head 
toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take for us your inheritance. So one way we can apply this is when we see both God's truth, his great law, and his grace, his ability to, to work with the lawbreaker, they should drive us to worship him. That's what Moses does. He hears this jarring statement, and the next words out of his mouth are plead with God to say, go with us. I want to be near you. He wants both truth and grace. We normally want one or the other. So here's how that might apply to us. Back for a moment to my previous statements about parenting. Say you were raised harshly. You know, that military dad I talked about. Say that's you. You know, what you've known growing up is, is kind of all truth. And, you know, I know it's, it's twisted truth. It's not God's law. But it's all truth without zero grace. With zero grace. If that's you, you might be someone who struggles to accept forgiveness for yourself or forgiveness for other people. Because you haven't been shown any. You're often either very angry or very, very fearful. Your application, then, is to see God's glory in his grace. Because you, you just haven't seen it growing up. See it throughout the Bible. Like, read through it and just think of all the ways in which God could have leveled them, but he didn't. Instead, he said, I'm still your dad. See it throughout the Bible. Here's the thing. Not because you have to, but because the Bible is God kneeling down and talking to you face to face. So on the other hand, if you were raised in maybe more of a soft home, full of grace with no context of truth, you might be the type of person who kind of lacks urgency because, hey, whatever, it's like no big deal. Um, or you might, in an extreme case, you might reject authority altogether because you weren't shown it. If that's you, your application is to see the glory of God in his truth. So read through and see the laws and realize, man, these people really need salvation. They really need grace. So you need to become more aware of what you've been saved from. Because God's law is there to show you how life works best. And every day, because if I were to like divide this room up, we would all probably fall more into one or the other camp. Um, every day, as we see the effects of sin on our bodies, and as we see the effect of sin on our relationships and on our planet, the tension of our need for God's perfect truth and our need for God's perfect grace should drive us to our needs uh, drive us to our knees in worship of God and not away from him. So God has leveled Moses here with his need to be restored. Then God has gracefully and clearly offered that restoration. And that lowly position, I, I argue, sets Moses up and sets us up to receive God's promises. It's actually the best place you can be. Because those promises actually depend on God and not us. That's your second section. God's promises are built on his glory. I'm going to read the um, verses 10 through 28. And as we do this, I am going to um, repeat a lot of law. 
may be very easy to check out. A lot of this is repetition from earlier in Exodus. But I do want to repeat it because God did. So, verses 10 through 28. And God said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels, such as have not been created in the, all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among you who... Who, uh, all the people among you whom, you whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do with you. Observe what I will command this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest you become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram, for you shall worship no other god for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, a jealous god, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods." You shall not make yourself any gods of cast metal. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the time appointed in the month of Eb. For in the month of Eb you came out from Egypt. All that opened the womb are mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cow and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you shall not redeem it, you shall break its neck. All the firstborn of your sons you shall redeem. And none shall appear before me empty-handed. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the feast of weeks, the first fruits of wheat harvest, and the feast of ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all your males appear before the Lord God, the God of Israel. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders, not one shall cover your land when you go up to appear before the Lord your God three times in the year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of the Passover remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and Israel. So Moses was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He either ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Now, a quick note, I'm not going to walk through all this the way I walked through the first point. You'd be here a while if that were true. And a lot of this, as I said earlier, is, is simply a repetition of what God has already said before in Exodus. Instead, I'm going to focus on what this rep, rep, uh, repetition signifies. All of this is a continuation of the plan that God has been rolling out from the beginning. And there are two statements that I want to draw your attention to. God will perform wondrous deeds, and God will have victory over his enemies. Verses 10 and 11. So we're going to focus in on those, and we're going to take a bit of a flying leap over the law and focus on what happens at the back end. First, the wonderful deeds in verse 10. Look at that with me. It's a proclamation that God will set Israel apart by doing things that no other God can do. He's been doing this throughout history with the creation and with, and with the flood and so on. But he's done it most recently with the plagues of Egypt. 
and the parting of the Red Sea. Though Egypt tried to match God's glory, they failed. And so all those deeds, God's reminding them, I did those, you didn't do those, and I did them for my glory. And so Israel, in God's actions, as a recipient of that, they were set apart. And by set apart, I mean literally they were set apart from Egypt. Second, God will have victory over his enemies. The list here is simply all these names of people you never heard of. The list here is simply Israel's immediate threats, the people they're going to run into as they go out. God has already promised this to Israel as he gave them the first copy of the Ten Commandments in chapter 31. This is not new. And so in repeating this response and repeating this promise, God is saying, the things I promised to you back in chapter 31, if chapters had existed then, are still true. They will not change despite your failure to obey me. The promises are still true because he said in verse 1, he said, I am making a covenant with you. From that, and all the way then down through verse 28, God then graciously repeats the laws to help Israel act set apart. I've set you apart, now act like it. This is how you do it. Because though God's promises are built on his glory, he still allows his people, like small children, to try again. And uh, then... On the other side of this law, Moses, in in verse 28, for 40 days and 40 nights, eats and drinks nothing, but he literally feasts on the word of God. And even more, the second time the, the law is given, God lets Moses be an even greater part of the process than the first time. Back in chapter chapter 31, verse 18, when the commandments were first given on the first stones, they were given to Moses quote, written by the finger of God. Here, it's different. Moses writes them out himself. That's why it probably takes him 40 days and 40 nights, because you're writing on stone. This is like a parent, after disciplining their child, saying, okay, now, repeat back to me. What did I say you should do? That's all that's happening here. Try again. You tell me. You write it down. I want to know that you get it. And so in doing that, the covenant is renewed, and now it's time to build God's house. Because that's what's happening next in the book of Exodus. God is planning to build a house. This tabernacle that we've been talking about so much, with all the exhaustive details. But... Before Israel even lifts a finger, God, I think here, has shown them the foundation of that house. The foundation is not brick and stone. It's truth and grace. See, Exodus is about so much more than God rescuing his people and then him building this big detailed house. Exodus is about what the tabernacle represents. God with us. God coming down to be with us. Fulfilling his covenant despite man's failure to keep it. 
So he's the foundation, and he's, in a way, the house. Now, just like you, if you were to go down to the courthouse, and you were to say, I know what this needs, and you take a copy of the Ten Commandments, and you nail it to the wall, that's not going to stop people from breaking the law. In fact, I read in the news, there was a person who was very angry at Christians, and he actually drove his car into the Ten Commandments at the courthouse. Smashed it. They're going to break again. How many times do you think Moses would go up this mountain if that were the case? Like every time you break it, God smashes the Ten Commandments. Go up, let's try again. How fast would would the earth run out of stone? It's because the commandments aren't going to stop people from breaking the law. Because we know Israel is going to break their commandments to God a lot more times. This repetition is so they know, deep down, time and time again, we can't keep this thing. There's a deeper issue than just, we need another copy. Your kids need to hear the rules again, but more than that, they need to obey. And the gospel account, as it unfolds past Exodus and throughout the whole of the Bible, the foundation, this this cornerstone of God's plan that goes beyond just some physical temple is revealed And like I said, it's not revealed in a building. It's revealed in a person. And that person is Jesus Christ. Who calls himself God's temple. And is called by the prophets, Emmanuel, or God with us. Even after Jesus' resurrection, the Apostle John, in looking back, calls Jesus the bringer of truth and grace. And just prior to that, he said, Moses could only bring the law. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. But Jesus could keep the law where Moses couldn't. He could only bring it. And yet, he could extend grace, and he did that too. This is what gives Christians the perfect assurance of the promises God makes. The promises are built not on us, but on Him. We need only believe in Jesus' perfect truth and grace extended to us. And that promise is guaranteed. That's what compels us to worship Him. That's what can help you not turn out the way your parents did. That can even help your children not to repeat your mistakes. Sounds a little bit like Moses on the mountaintop. We see the truth and grace and we worship. But while Moses pleaded for God to come with them, we don't have to do that. Before Jesus, Because Jesus actually sends the Holy Spirit and the Spirit goes with us wherever God leads. We don't need to beg God to go with us. If you're in Christ, he's already with you and he's not leaving. Friends, God's glory is shown in his grace and in his truth. And his promises are built on that. And none of that was ever more clear when men looked at the face of Jesus on the cross and said, surely this man was the Son of God. And so our application is this. Hold fast to the promises that are fulfilled in Jesus. Hold fast to those. If you doubt them... Don't. 
don't. It's like I'm saying to my kid, no, <laughs> don't do that. Doubt your doubt. Doubt your doubt. Even in your weakness, so as the weakness comes up and you start to think, oh, you know, maybe I'm not saved. Oh, man, you know, like, oh, I did it again. Is God going to bring me back? Is God going to welcome me in? Even in your weakness, let that drive you down on your knees and remember that God's promises are not dependent on you. But God's promises are for you. And they're for many more people outside this building. And they're for the people inside this building too. So as I close in prayer, I'm going to invite the worship team up. And I'm actually going to invite Steph Schreckengast after that to share some ways in which you can actually practically share these promises with people and care for our neighborhood in the coming weeks. There's a lot coming up. Let's pray to, let's pray to God together and ask him to help us. Let's pray. Dear God, I thank you so much for your promises. Lord, if your promises are dependent on us, we might as well walk out of here and cut the lights in our way out. It's not going through if it's on us. Lord, you say not just every deed that we should hold captive, but Lord, you say every thought we should hold captive. Every angry thought, every lustful thought, every vengeful thought, all of that is sin. And yet all of that was nailed to the cross. Lord, the cross forgave the sins of the Old, the New Testament, and they forgive every sin we will ever do. Lord, would you help that to motivate us to hate sin and to love you? Lord, what a simple action plan. Would you help us to hate sin and to love you? And help us to share that truth with people out there who have no idea what the gospel is on a practical level. Lord, help us to show them that with our lives. Amen.